The idea of radiance is simple. We at New Hope Chapel want to be a relevant church. But more important than being relevant to the world, we want to be relevant to Jesus. We believe God still speaks and His Word is still relevant to us. His message to the seven churches in Revelation has a historical context, but their lessons are eternal. So we're engaging with God through His Word and through prayer and saying, God, what is it that you want from our church? If we seek God's face, we know He's going to speak to us, and we will radiate with the glory of God. Radiate with the glory Join of us God. on this journey as our pastor, Justin Hibbard, leads us in building a church after God's own heart. God's own heart. God's own heart. We are uh, talking about Radiance, this series of seven churches that we're discussing here. And what does it mean to be a church, and what are these seven churches in Revelation? What's the relationship to them? Um, last week we looked at Ephesus, or actually two weeks ago we looked at Ephesus, which is the first church, a church that Paul told to keep watch for people that would come in and destroy the church, come in and wield power and do destructive things to the church. And they stood firm, except for one thing, they lost their first love. They forgot the whole reason behind being a body of Christ. Last week we took a look at the church of um, of Smyrna. And we said this church was a church that had all good things about it. It stood firm in the face of persecution. We looked at the ten persecutors of the Christian church, the ten Roman emperors. And we said this is probably what John meant when he said that it was a ten-day persecution. That it would last for ten emperors and that the last one would be the worst. That was Diocletian. And his particular persecution, which was so severe on the church, would last for ten years. Another indication of a ten uh, time period. But today we're going to turn our attention to Pergamum, which we find in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Looks like a beautiful place to visit, doesn't it? It's very nice. Come to Pergamum. We'll start in verse 12 here. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Anipus, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Powerful letter to the third church here. The third church on the west coast, actually it's a church that's about 16 miles from the coast, so it's not a total coastal, coastal town. But I've, I want to start off by looking at the introduction. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Just like we see in all the seven letters, we're going to see Jesus gives an introduction. And that introduction really makes sense more at the end of the letter. We understand why Jesus identifies himself in that way. It begins to be very clear. So we're going to put that aside for now and go right to the commendation. This is the third church in this series that is given a commendation. We're going to look at churches that don't receive a commendation, a compliment, because they're not doing anything very well. This church is doing something well. First of all, it's standing 
firm in the face of persecution. It mentions the name Anipus. Nothing's really known about Anipus. This is the only uh, record in history of this fellow Antipas. He's considered a faithful witness. That's also the word for martyr, a witness. And so he was executed for his faith. As we saw in Smyrna, they stood firm in the face of persecution, and that led them to be poor, probably because they didn't make the temple sacrifice to the, uh, to the emperor, and because of that, they were probably blacklisted. They didn't receive the mark of approval, or maybe even the mark of the beast, we might be able to say. So they couldn't buy or sell. And because of that, they were poor. But Jesus says, you are rich. And this church as well is receiving persecution, and they are standing firm in their faith. Now, something else that's interesting in this passage that we can't help but see, because it's there twice. Jesus says, this is the city where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you were to say, if, if you were to look at the world and say, where does Satan have his throne today? What cities might come to mind? Vegas? <laughs> that was awfully quick there, Mark. <laughs> the new advertising slogan, right? What happens in Vegas? <laughs> what happens in Satan's throne stays in Satan. What, 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 what other ones? What other ones do you come to mind? Washington, D.C. Now, that's interesting. Amsterdam's another one that comes to my mind. Hollywood, <laughs> Paris, all of these things we might say, and, and this is quite a conviction that Jesus says when he says Satan has his throne here. Well, one of the things that people believe why Satan has his throne here is because in the other cities we saw different types of idolatry. In Ephesus, we saw that Artemis and the temple to Artemis was kind of central to their city, the worship of Artemis. In Smyrna, it was the worship to the emperor. In Pergamum, it's the worship of Zeus. In fact, uh, Pergamum is known for having a number of altars, a number of areas of idolatry. Idolatry was central to uh, Pergamum's existence. And it was, it was a very important and prominent city. The ruins there are still rather spectacular. There's a lot left for us to see. There's a beautiful, it's kind of hard to show up, it's hard showing up here. But there's this beautiful... Uh, theater that's etched out of the side of this hill that overlooks the entire country. I mean, this was, this was a spectacular city to, to live in. In fact, in Berlin, they have a whole uh, museum to the city of Pergamum. And this is one of the models they have of, of everything with all the details. You can see it's, a, it's quite a fantastic uh, piece of architecture, or pieces of architecture. And to the right of the theater, you see that giant courtyard with the building in the middle. That was the Temple of Zeus. That was the Temple of Zeus. And so what, what many believe, what scholars believe, is that when Jesus refers to the city where Satan has his throne, perhaps it is to the, it's because of idolatry is so central to this existence, this city's existence. So nonetheless, they were standing firm in their faith, but Jesus gives them a reprimand. We see that reprimand beginning in verse 14. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin, so that they are forced, or so that, uh, to sin, um, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. You know the story of Balaam and Balak? 
It's one of those interesting stories that we can't forget, mainly because someone ends up having a conversation with a donkey, right? And Numbers 22 through 24 is where we find the story of Balaam and Balak. And the story goes like this. Balak summoned Balaam. Why did he summon Balaam? Well, Balaam was some sort of diviner who, who happened to know about the Lord God and has a conversation with the Lord before he goes off to see Balak. Balak's the king of Moab. And as the king of Moab, he, he, he's got his camp there, he's, he's got his country, and Israel moves in next door because there are nomadic people wandering in the desert. But this isn't just a, the, 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 the weird neighbor with the weird hair. This is, this is a, a people of about a million, if not more. Maybe two, three million. Balak freaks out, right? Because he's like, these guys are going to annihilate us. He knows he can't fight them. They don't have the manpower to fight Israel. So Balak summons Balaam and says, Balaam, come help me out. Just, you know, curse Israel. So Balaam's on his way. That's when the whole donkey incident, incident happens. He's riding his donkey. An angel appears before the donkey, but Balaam doesn't see it. His eyes are blind, blinded to it. And so the, so the donkey stops. So there's not, not really room to the right or to the left because they're walking kind of in a, in a narrow area. And then Bal- and the donkey, so what does Balaam do? He beats his donkey, right? And then the donkey moves to the side and crushes Balaam's uh, foot into the side wall, and he beats him some more. And then, and then the donkey just sits down, and Balaam continues beating him. And then the funniest thing, God opens uh, the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey goes, hey man, why are you beating me? Right? <laughs> <laughs> to which Balaam said, and I love this, he doesn't even like, he doesn't even like, he's not surprised that his donkey said, he's like, I'm beating you because you're not moving, right? He answers them. And then, and then the angel, and then the donkey says, I'm not moving because there's an angel standing in the middle of the way. And then Balaam's eyes are open. And then the angel says to Balaam, hey man, why are you beating your donkey? Right? It's quite, <laughs> it's such a funny story. And finally, though, Balaam does get to Balak. And he's taken up to a mountain, to a hillside look, overlooking Israel's camp. And Balak says, all right man, I'm paying you. Curse him. He says, well, I can only say what the Lord puts in my mouth. And over and over, instead of cursing Israel, Balaam blesses Israel. Over and over. And Balak's like, hey, this was not the plan. This is not what we agreed to. Balaam says, I'm sorry. God, God's not letting me curse Israel. I can only bless them. Over and over and over again, Balak's beside himself. He's like, well, this obviously isn't working, and you're not worth your price. So, But it sort of ends there, right? And then we... we, we find out that Israel gets involved with some of the women in Moab and start doing things, and God rains down judgment on them. And, um, and then we read in, verse, in chapter 31 that God annihilates Moab through the hands of Israel, and one of those that's annihilated is Balaam. You think, well, why is Balaam killed? He, he, all he, he did was say exactly what the Lord put in his mouth. Well, we're sort of hinted at in chapter 31 that Balaam was getting Balak to entice Israel into various sins. kind of have to read between the lines. I think it kind of went like this. Balaam said to Balak, look, I feel really bad. I know you paid me a lot of money to come out here. I just I get up there to curse him and nothing's coming out but blessings. I know that's not what you paid for, but I, but I can't. I can't go against God. I can't, I can't say things unless God puts it in my mouth. But I'll tell you what. I know this God, and I know what he likes, and I know what he doesn't like. He doesn't like... He, doesn't, he wouldn't like your women sleeping around with Israel's men. So I'll tell you what, I think if you got some women, put them in some revealing clothing, let them walk by the camp a little late at night, I think you might get something. Or, you know what, 
You know, when you make that sacrifice to your idols and you, you cook up that food, make it extra sweet and savory and smelly. And maybe cook, maybe make that sacrifice a little closer to Israel's camp so they can't help but smell the food and see you drinking that good wine. I think they might be interested in some of that. Pretty much that's exactly what happened. Israel got entangled with that. They fell into the snare. And God is angry. He's angry at Israel. But he's also angry at Balaam for teaching Balak how to do these things. You know, I think it's helpful here to understand why this even pertains in the first century. Why, why is Balaam and Balak mentioned in this, in this context? Well, let's take a little history lesson for just a moment. In the first century, the first church, it was made up of pretty much all Jews, right? At Pentecost, the people who are at Pentecost, they're there because they're Jewish. They're celebrating Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. And, and many of them become believers. Over 3,000 become believers. And so the first church was all Jewish. In fact, it's told that, that people thought of Christianity as a Jewish sect. How many of you describe your faith that way? I'm, I'm sort of a Jewish sect. There's a lot of churches that don't even know that Jesus is Jewish these days. They don't understand, I mean, you ask them what's Rosh Hashanah, they have no clue. And that's why we say, uh, that's why we, we talk about Christianity as Jewish, because we believe that Christianity has a context, and its context is Judaism. And for the first church, they understood this. They knew about temple worship, and because of that, they knew about God. They knew how God wanted to be worshipped. They had the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and the 613 Jewish laws. So they knew what God expected of them. They knew the code of morality, what to do and what not to do. And then they also had this concept of the anointed one, the Messiah, that would one day come and free them. And so when Jesus comes into the picture, they're like, some of them get it. Some of them say, ah, yeah, this is the guy we've been talking about all along. And after he dies and raises to life, many of them say, oh, this makes perfect sense. Because, you know, in Yom Kippur, how we have this atoning sacrifice, well, Jesus was our atoning sacrifice for our sins. So it was natural that these Jewish people would convert to being believers in Jesus. But, you know, Christianity spread. It spread quickly throughout the world, especially through the Roman Empire, which was the largest empire of its time. And it went from Israel, which was, all, which was mainly Jewish, to these places that were mainly Roman. And so now you have a very different context because the Romans don't understand Jewish worship. They don't know about the temple. Their temple is the temple to Zeus, which, by the way, this is a, the life-size model that's in that um, in that museum in, per, in uh, Berlin, uh, the Museum of Pergamum. And, and so th- that's what they do. They worship God. They go to that temple. They, and they have a very different idea of who God is because they have a polytheistic idea brought over from the Greek way of life where God is Zeus and Artemis and Diana and so forth, all these different gods. And if you ever read any of Homer's works, you get a, a sense of what they believe and some very twisted views about what they believed about who God is, or who gods are, and what they do. Kind of just toying around with mankind for their own pleasure. And then they had a very different idea of worship. See, their idea of worship was very strange to us, who come into a church and act very civilized and, uh, and sing some songs and so forth. Theirs was more along the lines of having sex with prostitutes in the temple, and having orgies and things like that. It was very sexually driven. It was a very sexual-driven society. Sex was at the, the core of it. In fact, we know, we know of Caesarea. He was a Roman statesman, uh, Cicero, sorry. And this is, what he, this is what he said. If there is anyone who thinks that young men 
should not be allowed the love of many women. He is extremely severe. I'm not able to deny the principle he stands on, but he contradicts not only with the freedom our age allows, but also with the customs and allowances of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that what is now allowed was not allowed? Doesn't that sound a lot like the public school system and why they don't talk about abstinence in schools? Oh, that's really severe. I don't know anyone who does that, right? And I thought to myself, man, this is, this is really relevant stuff, isn't it? Well, Rome was even more of a society very much more base than what we could even imagine. They were involved with pedophilia and homosexuality and all sorts of stuff like that, multiple wives, every polygamy and so forth. It was really, really gross. In fact, some scholars have said that Christianity was so successful in Rome because Rome was so filthy that people got so tired of living in the filth they were in. Sort of like the story of Dorian Gray. I don't know if you've read that book by Oscar Wilde or seen the movie, the recent movie. But this idea of, you know, I'm so filthy, I just can't stand it anymore. Well, the, the point is, is that these people brought their baggage to church. We all bring our baggage. We bring our baggage because we've come from broken homes. We've come from places where different philosophies were spoken. We come from cultural differences. And, and the thing that Rome, that the Roman world had to wrestle with, at least the Christians in the Roman world, the Gentiles, was that they had to wrestle with what part of this is my culture and what part of my culture is sin. And we still wrestle with that today because we're so blind to our own culture because this is our way of life that when we come to faith in Christ, there's certain things that we're so used to doing, so used to thinking, that we have to put it aside. We have to say, well, that's not right. And that's difficult to do. It's difficult to be honest about it with ourselves. And we see this in a big way. I think in the last 15 years, the hottest topic in churches has been the issue of homosexuality. And a lot of congregations have gone to accepting homosexuality as a, a permissible act for Christians. Not only that, but they've said, hey, not only that, we're going to bless same-sex unions and we're going to hire homosexual leaders to uh, lead our churches. We'll talk about a church that has adopted the way of culture. These are difficult things. You know, I think there's really two rules of thumb because we, we all wrestle with this in some way and ask ourselves, well, what part of this is acceptable to God and what part of this is sinful? I think there's really two litmus tests. The first one is, what does the Bible say? And not only what does the Bible say, not, not what do we think the Bible says, but what does the Bible say? I look at, I look at passages like Romans 1, uh, there's some others in Corinthians, where, where it's very blatantly, I mean, what do we not understand about if a man sleeps with a man, he does not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But what we do is we try to twist that to be, well, that's not really what it's saying, right? And we do that with all sorts of passages. I'm just picking on one issue. But we always do that. We're so good at that. Well, I want it to be okay for me, so I'm going to look at it this way. We have to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? I think the Bible is very clear on the issues, and the ones that, that where we're not clear is oftentimes because we don't want it to be clear. And so we ignore its clarity. So that's the first thing. We can look at Bible, the Bible, see what God's word says about it. The second thing, I think, is what does the culture say about it? Whatever the culture says about it, do the opposite. <laughs> so if the culture is saying to me, if the culture is saying to the church, 
hey, great job, church. You guys are awesome, accepting homosexuality as permissible. I think that's exactly what God would want. What do you know about God? Right? You just said it. John 14, 6 makes no sense to you that Jesus is the only way, and you call that exclusivity and not fair to others. Well, if you don't feel that way about Jesus, how can you tell me how Jesus wants us to live? That's the bottom line. So the first thing, what does the Bible say? The second thing, what does the culture say? And generally, most of the time, do the opposite, right? Well, there's another part of this reprimand that's given to this church, and that is that some of them are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is the second time in these, in these letters that we've seen the word Nicolaitans brought up. And uh, this, in Ephesus, they resisted it. In Pergamum, they're starting to accept it. Some people are holding on to it. There's much debate about what Nicolaitans were. Some believe that there was a man named Nicholas. Even some say he was one of the first deacons of the church who taught about sexual immorality and taught that this was permissible in the life of a Christian. Others take a different approach on it because there's a lot of conflicting evidence about Nicholas and who Nicholas was and was he that deacon? Why do other people say good things about him? And others believe, no, it's a philosophy based on the word, Nicolaitans. Broken down this way. The first part is Nico, which means to conquer. The second part, you might understand, Laodans or laity, which means the people. So what was happening early on is that, and we, and we know this from letters that Clement wrote, I think he's the first one, who creates this sort of class system in Christianity called the clergy and the laity. The idea that there, is, there are people on top who are called to ministry and people at the bottom who just everybody else. And we use that word clergy and lady even today. Even though we would profess the priesthood of all believers, we still use this as sort of a class system. I'm all about leadership in churches. I know, what, I know what scripture says about there are apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors and so forth. But what I don't get is this. Because the word, cler- the word laity is from the word laos. And whenever it's used, it's always used to talk about the whole people of God. Not the common man or anything like that. It's the whole people of God, the whole church of God. The word clergy comes from the word kleros, which means a portion or a share or something like that. So it's not, it's not about a class system. Clergy means the, the inheritance that we get. And it's always used in the sense of, hey, this is, the, this is the portion of ministry that God allots to each of us. This is a privilege. It's not about a class system. It's not about, hey, I'm at the top and everybody else is at the bottom. This is not Justin Hibbard's church. This is, not anyone, this is God's church. We're all God's people. We all work together. There is a difference, and 1 Peter 5 makes it clear, there's a difference between hierarchy, which we know so well in the business world, and community and shepherding, which, which Peter emphasizes. Be shepherds of God's flock, not because you have to, but because you get to. Loving God's people, caring for them, as the great shepherd does. So that's what I think is talked about in this word, Nicol- in, in this word Nicolaitans. And we know that it takes a strong foothold in that first century church, in the church throughout the ages, and even today, I think churches still have this idea of a clergy and laity. Not in a sense of leadership and others, but in a sense of, hey, this this is a hierarchy, rather than having a, a better understanding about what God wants for his people. The priesthood ended at the cross, right? We don't need a mediator between us and God 
on a human level. That was done by Jesus and Jesus alone. And so he gives them a warning. A warning because they were involved in these two things. They were involved in false teaching of sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols, and there were people teaching false doctrine, but also that some people were holding on to this this, uh, sort of uh, pagan idea of a priesthood and and of uh, I'm in charge and you're not and so forth. The warning is, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, here the introduction comes in handy, right? Because it's in the introduction that we read that Jesus has a double-edged sword. There we read that the double-edged sword comes from his mouth. That's kind of a weird description, right? That the double-edged sword comes from his mouth. Well, that's exactly what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. He sees Jesus standing there, purple robe, a gold sash, seven stars in his right hand, walking among the seven lampstands, and a double-edged sword coming from his mouth. We get a better idea of this in Hebrews chapter 4. Because here's what Hebrews chapter 4 says, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I've heard this often referred to as the Word of God, meaning the Bible. I, I, I don't know that I agree with that, because what, John, what the writer of Hebrews uses for the Word of God here is specifically logos of theos. It's the exact language that's used in John chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, theos. Right? He was with God in the beginning. What is Hebrews talking about? I think Hebrews is talking about Jesus himself. Jesus is sharper than a double-edged sword. He has the ability to cut through the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. He judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I'm a father. And as a father, and those of you who know, as any parent, your kids mess up, right? And you tell them not to do something, and they continue doing it. The first time, we may ask in a very soft voice, stop doing that. If I have to ask a third time, it's going to be a little harsher, and maybe with a spanking, right? Jesus is telling them, repent. And if you don't repent, it's going to be harsher. God's justice, his judgment, isn't just punitive. It's meant to bring us to repentance. That's the whole attitude behind it. He wants them to repent. And some people don't repent. And so something bad happens, and their sin is exposed, and then all, it's just total devastation. They're broken beyond belief, because they didn't heed the first warning. We're talking about, in Sunday school, we were talking about Judas. How many times does Jesus give them hints? He drops hints all over the place. Of, he's looking right at Judas and saying, I know what you're doing. Stop it. To the point where everything just falls apart in Judas's life. Repent before it's too late. That's the word for Pergamum. Repent so I don't have to get on my sword. So that it can, so you can be restored into communion. But he gives them a promise. Like we've seen with all the churches. In Ephesus we saw it's the promise of the tree of life. In Smyrna it was the promise to not, uh, to not perish in the second death. 
here that he's giving them two promises. For the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Well, we know the word manna. We know it from the story of Exodus, right? Where Israel was in the wilderness. They had nothing to eat. They prayed and God made manna and quail fall from the sky. Probably preferred asparagus and filet mignon. That's all right. And they had manna fall from the sky. Jesus himself makes reference to this in John chapter 6. He has that strange conversation with the people at Capernaum right after he breaks the fishes and the loaves and feeds 5,000, right? And in this passage, he says things like, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which we take in all sorts of different theological directions. But this is what he says. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will uh, live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus is, he is um, comparing himself, so to speak, in an analogy of the manna. There was manna that fell from heaven. That was provision for a time. And if you didn't store it the right way, it began, got moldy. And if you try to store too much, it got moldy. But my, but me, I am the living bread. I don't go moldy. You, you don't die if you eat me. Right? Well, he says, well, what, is, what does it mean to have eternal life? It means to do the work of God. What is the work of God? Jesus says in John 6, the work of God is to believe in the one whom God has sent. In Luke 22, Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper, the last Passover meal that he's going to have on earth. And actually that he's going to have for a long time because he tells us that in Luke 22, he says, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it, is, until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So many people wonder, well, when do we get to eat this meal? What is this meal talking about? What is this talking about? Well, it's talking about the great banquet. The great banquet of the marriage supper with the Lamb. The time when Jesus himself is, is, is married to once and for all, to his bride. And the bride is the church. In Revelation 19, we read, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So the hidden man, I believe, is that moment where, we, where Jesus is unveiled and we get to see him face to face. Not as just, not as just an earthly being, someone who shed off his glory to take on the hum, humility of a man, but in his full glory fully God, and fully resurrected man. The second promise is another interesting one. It is the promise of giving a white stone with a new name written on it, a name that nobody knows but us. So many people have speculated, what does this white stone mean? And we don't find any references like, we, like we've seen with the other promises. If we look further in Revelation, those promises become clear, right? Just like the wedding supper. But this one is not referenced later on in Revelation. 
So some people believe that this is a reference to something that went on in the Roman society. There are really uh, three, there could be more, three schools of thought. One of them is that a gladiator who was notorious and victorious, he, he was well known because he was great. He was uh, the Cal Ripken of Baltimore, so to speak. He was someone who, who had endured the many fights and had lived through them. Well, he was given a white stone with his name written on it, and that let him live at the public's expense for the rest of his life. So everywhere he went, he never paid a dime. Everyone knew this is, this is, the, this is the gladiator. This is, he, is, he is the great one. He gets to have everything at his beck and call. Another one is that in a juror, when there was a trial and there were jurors involved, they were given two stones, a white one and a black one. And if the, def if the defendant was guilty, they held out the black stone. If he was innocent, they held out the white stone. A third thought is that if you were given an invitation, sometimes it was given on a white stone, especially to a, a wedding banquet of sorts. So all three of these probably could apply here, right? We see, we see that we're innocent. We're claimed innocent by the blood of Jesus. We see that uh, we live in, this, in the kingdom of heaven by God's grace, and also that we're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The other thing is that there's, it's written in stone. You know, I think sometimes, in, especially in this time, in this culture, we get so anxious about, what, about laid off, getting laid off, right? We're so afraid of walking into work and getting that letter that says, there's just no more room in the budget for you, right? And that causes a lot of anxiety. It causes people to lose sleep at night, and for good reason. But in heaven, our name is etched in stone. We never can be erased from that. There's, there's a couple of anecdotes of Moses and David as well who, who mention this phrase about being blotted out from God's book. Well, in heaven, our place is secure. We never have to worry about being kicked out, not having room for us, or anything else. That is the gift. It's etched in stone. The idea of a new name is also one of mystery, but perhaps it is that it just simply means God knows us, has this relationship with us, and you, you know, with your, your spouse or significant other, where you might call them a pet name. Or you, or you have a friend from college who, who gives you a nickname, and you pray that nobody hears him say that out loud in public, right? Well, Jesus has a name for us. And he and, and us, we understand that. It doesn't make sense to everyone else. But it demonstrates not only our place in heaven, but our personal relationship with the Lord. I think that's really cool. That, that they're, they're, in heaven, it's not like we have, I mean, you think of all the, the, the billions of people that will be in heaven. How God has time for each one of them. You're like, I can't fathom that, right? But it's... What's given to us here, the promise that's given to us, is that in heaven, our relationship with God is more personal than ever. I think that's really neat. So some, some interesting lessons here in the, in the story of Pergamum, in the church of Pergamum. Lessons about holding firm in the faith. Lessons about the problems of letting the culture infiltrate the church and, and being honest with God about repenting but also wonderful promises that apply to all of us. Promises that, that heaven awaits, and it's more wonderful than we could ever imagine. 
The idea of radiance is simple. We at New Hope Chapel want to be a relevant church. But more important than being relevant to the world, we want to be relevant to Jesus. We believe God still speaks and His Word is still relevant to us. His message to the seven churches in Revelation has a historical context, but their lessons are eternal. So we're engaging with God through His Word and through prayer and saying, God, what is it that you want from our church? If we seek God's face, we know He's going to speak to us, and we will radiate with the glory of God. Radiate with the glory. Join of God. us on this journey as our pastor Justin Hibbard leads us in building a church after God's own heart. God's own heart. God's own heart. New Hope Chapel is a ministry in Arnold, Maryland. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Special thanks to the least of these for the music for this podcast.